morning! This is Amanda, one of Steve's longtime friends and executive producer of Too Much Scrolling. Happy anniversary, guys. I'll see you in the future. Welcome to Too Much Scrolling for February 13th, 2024. I'm Steve Fodor. I'm Eros, God of Love. <laughs> We're just a couple of guys sitting around talking about things that are important to us. Hopefully they're important to you. If you need more information, there's so many great ways to find more information. Chip, once again, I'm, I'm sorry, Eros, God of Love. Once again, it is Mardi Gras. We have a show on Mardi Gras every year for 10 years. Isn't that, isn't that special? It is special, Stephen, which explains why, um, you know, I've got the wings on, but I also am doing the samba because, you know, I want to make sure I, I get my carnival dances in. You got the carnival, you got the Mardi Gras, you got the uh, Ash Wednesday tomorrow, and oh yes, that's right, Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day to everybody who's celebrating that part of our calendar this week. Do we remind everyone they can go to hashtag TMS loves you? And they can find their um, special song list. And remind everyone, you can go to the gas station and get flowers. Film at 11. Brings us to our film at 11, our movie of the week. You have gone and, and seen some very interesting February films this week, Chip. There's a lot of films that are, were released around Valentine's Day, Steve. And I was very lucky. I got to see Lisa Frankenstein, which um, is going to be, I guess, released through the masses for Valentine's Day. This is definitely not a Valentine's Day kind of title. This is a throwback to the 80s comedy horror genre, right? I'll disagree with you, Steve. This was absolutely planned for Valentine's Day. Really? This is a love story. Oh, so it's kind of uh, like a pastiche to like the ni 1980s um, dark comedies like Heather's and Edward Scissorhands. Um, and so this is uh, the story of a young girl, Steve, who's going through a goth phase and would just like to be loved by somebody, you know, at a graveyard. And <laughs> okay. uh, he comes back to life. It's a silly uh, story, but there's a couple things that have me very concerned about it. Um, first of all, um, there's a lot of killing in this movie and she's never really called out on what she's doing, like never really, um, getting called out on it. There is a date rape drug that is presented to her at a party and, uh, she is sexually assaulted. Mm. That's not truly addressed either, in my opinion, mm. uh, other than the kid gets killed. And then at the end, there's a suicide. Once again, this is um, a light, weird science John Hughes type of comedy, and it just seems like there's some really some some things that just kind of left out that should have been addressed in this this movie that kind of didn't. Hmm. Um, and you know, there's a little Aria Speedwagon and some um, yeah some '80s music in there to to make it a little more fun. I um, really struggled with this film because there were parts of it where I laughed really wonderfully. And then there were parts where I was just shocked that somehow there was something about the story. It just wasn't, they didn't clean it up to kind of address some of the, uh, not, not the dark issues, not the dark humorous issues, 
but sort of like really what this was saying. And um, I'll give it 40 out of 100. I, I'm going to be pretty um, mean to it because of I, I think that this needed another rewrite. I, I think most critics agree with you that patchwork method of putting this together certainly is shown in the in the final and and needed a little going over to to make it less uh full of zippers and scars steve we have another film and when one goes to the theater to watch a a film and to experience life um we want to go we're going to see a film that's uh, in french steve it's a reading film this is The Taste of Things. This is a French film featuring Juliette Binoche. One of those, hey, everybody, let's look at some beautiful food and wrap that beautiful food around a love story, a romance. So grab a glass of Beaujolais, Steve. <laughs> Sit down and uh, eat some cheese and experience this, this delicate flower of a film. And... It starts off with um, our lead in the garden picking out the root vegetable, Steve, that will be prepared for the fancy feast at her restaurant. Farm to table, my friend. Farm to table. Nice. And uh, if you are like everybody else during the pandemic, you spend a lot of time on YouTube watching people cook and improving your culinary skills. Don't worry. This film is an exploration of watching a master make the rib roast, make the uh, vegetables, spend a lot of time cooking French food. <laughs> There's so many great and, 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 and everyone food. eating it. You get to watch people eat it too. <laughs> Did you like this movie? You sound like you're being negative on this movie. This movie, I really struggled on how to like rate this film. I said 60 out of 100. It is a delicate story. It's a story of a man and a woman who work in a kitchen together, who um, he always asks her at the end of the day, will you marry me? And she goes, ah, you don't want to marry me, but I'll leave my door unlocked if you want to come see me tonight. And so it's a love story. And eventually she says, yes, yes, I will marry you. And she dies. How French, how French, Steve. And our a director is Vietnamese. And uh, there's something that's very um, Asian- and French about how they view the world. Like when you see the pictures on the screen, you know, you get to see feel the textures. You can almost smell the food. It really is kind of a, a specialness to it, but it is a light, light film. I really would say before you go see this film, you should watch the trailer. Okay. And if you said, oh, that interests me then you should go see this film. But many people will say, oh my God, he sat through this. And I'll say, of course I did. Of course I, I did. I, I, I do it for the public, Steve. I love those food-based movies. I think of Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, and Chocolat, and like Water for Chocolate, and Babette's Feast. I mean, there's there's a whole history of French films that are food-based like this, where romance lives in this joy of cooking. I, I look forward to seeing this one. Oh, good God, Steve. Anyway, I sat through it, 60 out of 100, if you like these types of films. I do. I do like these films very much. Thank you very much. 
I got a chance to see a documentary this week on Netflix. This is the greatest night in pop. This is the story of the creation of the song. We are the world. There is a time. Come on, Steve. (laughs) (laughs) It is, it is miraculous that this song came into being the amount of work in production that it took to make this song happen is something special. January 25th, 1985, dozens of the era's most popular musicians happened to be in Los Angeles for the American music awards. And the idea was to bring them all together, to sing one song all together in one little room. And it took them all night to get this done and usa for africa steve so that was um right after um the Mm band-aid was it the year was it six months after band-aid something like that i'm not sure what the timeline is but bob geldoff was there for the recording he was a part of this conversation what can we do what as musicians as superstars what can we do to save the world well this is you know obviously dealing with the um Africa was going through a famine at the time, mm-hmm. and uh, this was a, 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 a charity song that all of these performers were part of. Um, the song was written by Lionel Richie and Michael Jackson. And there's a great so, story behind that where the two of them got together at Michael Jackson's house, and Lionel Richie was so starstruck by who Michael Jackson was at that time and how his influence on pop was was so guiding to who Lionel Richie was. Was he dancing on the ceiling? <laughs> what a feeling. All right, so did they address Prince at all? Because Prince didn't perform on this, did he? Yeah, yeah. Sheila E. was in the room, and one of the most striking pieces of this documentary is Sheila E. recalling how she felt. She felt like they were just using her to get Prince in the room. She was on the phone with Prince trying to convince him to be there, to be a part of this moment in history. And she knew that that just wasn't who he was. He was not that guy who was going to show up. There were too many people in that room for Prince. He was not going to be able to function there. And, uh, the the world is is a poorer place because Prince was not able to be a part of this. So as a documentary, do they interview the different uh, performers that were on this? How did this work? This is brilliant. This is amazing that they had the foresight to have cameras in the room for this moment. This was such a huge moment that they had to keep secret from everybody, but they had a full film crew with full lights. And that comes, that comes into the production as well, because the lights were so hot. 1985, uh, lighting was all incandescent. How how hot were they, Steve? They were so hot that the people were sweating while they were trying to put together this production. All of these multimillionaire huge popular musicians were having a real hard time getting this job done well the men were sweating steve the the women were glistening that's right i have so many memories of of this moment in 1985 and seeing behind the scenes having the cameras there watching these people you know go out for chicken because they were hungry because they had been there for hours trying to get together to record this this is a celebration of that moment so 
they recorded it during the day and then they were at the awards ceremony in the, in the evening or were they at the oh. award ceremony the previous evening? The, the award ceremony, the American Music Awards hosted by Lionel Richie happened that evening. And then at the conclusion of that ceremony, they all drove to this tiny little recording studio and started the process of recording the song. And they stayed there the entire night, well into the next morning to get this song recorded. Well, you can imagine the ego, Steve. I mean, they said, we are the world. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> that was one of the things that, that, that they, somebody and nobody's really sure who somebody put up a sign that said set your ego aside you are not the star of this there's nobody who is the star because everybody here is such a superstar uh everybody involved has these interesting memories I, I love the bob dylan part where he is really struggling with this because his musicality does not match the musicality of this song and he has to find a way to match his vocal talent to what's going on in the room and you know what we've read about like carrie fisher she's the one who could have put all this together anyway right she, she had all those parties where she brought all those people together and they were just kind of hanging out and, you know, it's pretty amazing when you get a group of, um, I mean, you just re recognize they all know each other. They all know each other. And then they started autographing each other's music because they were all starstruck as well. They, they recognized the stardom of everybody else in the room and they appreciated everything that was going on. This is a great documentary. I recommend it highly. Steve, that wasn't the only thing you got to watch this week. I also dialed back in time a little bit farther back than 1985 i went back to 1928 and watched one of my favorite movies bullets over broadway this is a movie that was released in 1994 celebrating its 30th anniversary and one of those movies that really sticks with me it's number 22 on my list of my top 25 movies of all time and it's just got something special in the dialogue and the way that characters are presented that this movie has stuck with me for 30 years how awesome this is a woody allen film was this uh before his scandals or was this after his scandals <laughs> does that <laughs> did that impact you when you were watching this certainly we've talked a lot about how the art and the artist are certainly two things that we need to think through and yes the dialogue in this movie goes into that conversation because woody allen was in the middle of his scandalous relationship with his current wife who was his formerly uh adoptive daughter and yes 1994 was a big time in that story and the idea of separating the artist from the art is on the forefront of this story about a struggling playwright who decides he wants to have his play on broadway regardless of the cost and the cost is getting uh funding from the mafia in new york in 1928 this is so much fun. This is so silly. This is an all-star cast. Jim Broadbent, John Cusack, Harvey Firestein, Chaz Palminteri, Rob Reiner, Jennifer Tilly, Tracy Ullman. It, the list just keeps on going. Diane Weist won her second Oscar for her role in this movie. Uh, there's a very Sopranos-esque gangster piece to this, including Polly Walnuts himself as one of the New York gangsters. I, I don't know how he got that role. 
And just so we, we mentioned this, Rob Reiner is always meathead, Steve. He's always known as meathead. He certainly he certainly has a, a, a starring role in this movie. And certainly, yes, I can see the meathead character in his work here. I love this movie. The reason why I watched it this week is because this weekend was the celebration of the Lunar New Year. You know, the thing that we used to call Chinese New Year. Well, there's a line in this movie that has stuck with me for 30 years. The star of the movie says, look, I haven't had a drink since New Year's Eve. And <laughs> the other character says, you're talking about Chinese New Year. Well, naturally. Still, that's two days, Sid. You know how long that is for me. Happy Lunar New Year to everyone who celebrates. Book it, book it, book it. Book it, book it, book it. Book it. Book it. Brings us to our book it, our book of the week. I... Uh, Chip, have I mentioned that I, I'm kind of nostalgia uh, on this show a lot? <laughs> Yeah, it's either time travel or nostalgia, Steve. Or maybe and, both. And, you know, Chicago is a big part of that also, Steve. Let's talk a little bit about this book, Opposable Thumbs, How Siskel and Ebert Change Movies Forever. This is a 2023 book, Steve, by Matt Singer. Yes, this was published right at the end of 2023. I finally got a chance to, to get through it this week. This is a fantastic look at the history of Siskel and Ebert. Movie criticism in the 1990s, they were the ones. They were the ones who that made movie criticism what it was. Well, in fact, the, the thumbs up was, is something that we know from their rating system. Yeah. Um, so I use this hundred point skill system. He they use thumbs up or thumbs down. It's just a you know yay or nay. Steve, a lot of people think that Michael Jordan was the most competitive Chicagoan. Uh, is that true? Oh boy, the stories the stories of Michael Jordan and Walter Payton and their competition between the the two those two men for stardom are uh, notorious. But the stories of competition between Siskel and Ebert are. Stunning. Those two men would not give an inch. They competed for everything. The stories in this book, uh, <laughs> one of my favorites, is at one point they would not let Siskel and Ebert order their own lunches when they were lunching together. They ordered the identical sandwich for the two men so that they could not compete and argue about who had more lettuce on their sandwich. This was a... a Full on, all the time, constant one-upmanship between the two of them. The idea of Siskel and Ebert, those two names, which name goes first, was a big battle. And Roger Ebert wanted them to switch the name six months in to their production because his name needed to be first for at least a little bit of the time. So for those of you that are younger and do not know who these people are, they are Chicago column writers, mm -hmm. and one worked for the Sun-Times, and one worked for the Tribune. And, and they came together for a PBS show that eventually they spun off, and it, it was not connected to PBS. Correct. The, the PBS part of it is certainly a part of the winning formula here. The fact that I 
was watching PBS a lot as a kid, learning about the world and having these two men, Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert, bring me the pop culture of the time through their view of the movies was, was huge. And then, yes, they went on to be part of the Disney Corporation. They went on to syndicate their work across the country and they became the face of culture for movies. Not everyone was Gene Shalit, Steve. Uh, Gene Shalit tried. He tried very hard. He, he had his moments. There were plenty of other critics out there, but really they all paled in comparison. Even today, if, if you mention the, the main critics of film today, I still say they, they pale. Maybe like those guys from, um, I think they're too, from, too much scrolling. Right. Like one of them watches films and the other one may not. I mean, uh, watches movies from 30 years ago and tells you about them. Yes. Let's, let's revisit these, these movies from yesteryear. And I think that that's a big part of pop culture for me. Pop culture is what's happening today mixed with the history of what happened before you reviewed a Diablo Cody movie this week. You sort of liked it, but it was patchwork. And we can say that in comparison, it fails on these points. I think that's important to keep that view of history in our pop culture. Sure. Let's talk a little bit about um, some of the movies that they they um, found particularly interesting. Mm -hmm. And let's look at one of them called Hoop Dreams. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, Hoop Dreams would not have been as special as it was without these two guys pushing for it. It was a three hour long documentary about basketball on the streets of Chicago. That in and of itself isn't that exciting? I mean, it's a great film. Don't get me wrong. It is a great documentary, but most people would not sit through a three hour documentary about Chicago street basketball without Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel saying, you need to seek out this film. You need to watch this film. It's important. I want, I want to say that coach Krzyzewski, when he was at Duke university, spent a lot of time watching Chicago basketball. There's a reason why Duke basketball is as good as it is. There you go. Bringing movies like that to the public is something special that they did. Something that we try to do here on Too Much Scrolling. We talk a lot about very small independent film because I think that those films have something to say and those are important. How about the film that you know, My Dinner with Andre, Steve? That's another one, isn't it? That is a famous film. You know this film, My Dinner with Andre. Even if you haven't seen it, it is a part of the pop culture. And again, very obscure, independent film. Two guys sitting at a table talking. That's boring. That is a boring film. But Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert decided there's something there. There's something special. There's something important about this film and really made it the historic moment that it is. In fact, that, that seems to be one of the interesting parts about their show is they would always have whatever the pop movies were of the moment, mm -hmm. but they were able to ferret out some things that maybe most of us wouldn't have available at your local theater. You had to look for. So tell us a little bit about like the foreign films and kind of the, the hidden uh, films that they would, would bring to us. This is what we do, isn't it? This is exactly what we do. We bring those pop 
number one sort of films. And then we try to highlight something special, something special film advocacy saying, Hey, you, you, you people that don't watch movies, you should watch this movie. And here's why that's what Siskel and Ebert were able to do. I don't know that I would have watched as many foreign films in the eighties and nineties as I did without Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert telling me about them how would you know well you know we spent 10 years talking about films every single week mm -hmm. and we we've seen the previews for many of them we actually used to announce the previews uh which we don't do anymore but what you know we've seen once you've watched i don't know 10 years worth of films i mean you've got this huge body to pull from and you see the gems versus yeah the ones kind of they're just they're a product forgettable and, and then we have the the switch around where a genre is really hot for a little bit of time. And for um, much of our uh, recording, we've used superhero films. Mm -hmm. But we're maybe at the end of their domination of the market. Like Westerns are not, you know, every once in a while a Western will come out. Every once in a while a musical will come out. But we're not getting these every week. I'm ready um, to get back to the dialogue-driven, character-driven stories of the 1990s. That's why I brought back Bullets Over Broadway this week, because of that frenetic, quick-witted, overlapping dialogue that that movie brings. 1994 was full of those films. And don't forget Clerks was 1994. 30 years ago, we had an interesting moment in that genre. And yeah, I'm ready for the superhero genre to be presented as as something and then to have alternatives to that genre coming up so tell us a little bit more about this book what what would be why we would want to explore it if you love podcasts you probably would love siskel and ebert i think that their dialogue their way of speaking their way of communicating and connecting with their listeners and viewers is the spark that started our show for sure podcast discussion debate versus argument is something that i really got out of this book yeah at times they would go after each other they really would they really it was, and it was it was great because you know they had strong opinions on stuff and they were very gifted at articulating their newspaper background mm -hmm. allowed them to master the English language in a concise way, mm -hmm. which allowed them to argue and debate in a very concise way. And we see a little bit of that right now with Pardon the Interruption, which mm -hmm. has Tony Kornheiser and Mike Wilbon, both sports writers, both work for the Washington Post from different areas, one's from Chicago, one's from New York. But anyway, it's... That's the reason why I watch that many times is because they're very gifted mm. with their language. They're very gifted with their thoughts and they have experience because they've been through so much of it. So Siskel and Ebert is, you know, a previous version of that. And being able to thoughtfully debate issues as opposed to arguing over issues is something that I think we're missing in the 21st century. There's so much argument that is not the the debate where we can still part as friends even though we disagree with each other we can have opposite opinions and that's okay were they friends 
they were great friends by the end. They were great <laughs> friends by the end. They, they debated, they argued, they, they made fun of each other. They, they said terrible things about each other, but at the end they loved each other and they understood how important they were to each other and how Siskel and Ebert, the brand was so important with Siskel alone wasn't the same as Siskel and Ebert and Ebert alone wasn't the same as that team. Yeah. And you know, they, they both passed mm -hmm. and certainly their legacy is still felt in Chicago and and a lot of on the criticism level in newspapers and stuff like that. We kind of, uh, we have these things today, but they're just not um, celebrated in the, as a community uh, as, as because Culture. we are so, we're so pulled in a thousand different ways. Yeah, that's exactly it. It's that culture. They were at the right place at the right time on the right channels where we knew who they were. We understood what they were saying and we listened that culture, that building of culture is something that I've been dealing with on Facebook for a while now. I don't know. I don't know what pop culture is in 2024. Is that because I'm an old person and I'm out of, out of touch? Yeah, maybe, but the fragmentation of what we are seeing and what we are thinking is certainly playing into that Siskel and Ebert for me, uh, I could go back and, and read their work and go, yes, I understand you. So thumbs up or thumbs down, Steve. This is two enthusiastic thumbs up for opposable thumbs. How Siskel and Ebert changed movies forever published in 2023 by Matt Singer. Scroll with it. Brings us to our scroll with it. Lots of things happening in the world. There's so many things changing. The FCC has made AI-based robocalls illegal, Chip. I think that there might be an election happening this year. <laughs> I can I can only imagine how this would go. So I want you to think about the robocalls mm -hmm. that you receive. I mean, some people um, never pick they they don't pick up my phone when I call as spam risk. So uh, I I don't know what that. <laughs> but you can imagine the robocalls; they're there all the time, and mm -hmm. you could get a phone call every minute. And if you picked up, it could say vote for somebody or this or that. This is this is one of the areas we're going to have to kind of play around with. What is reasonable to use AI mm -hmm. because there's no human behind it. Right. And what is, you know, what should the human experience um, from AI and uh, is it, should they be contacting you? Trying to make laws as technology is advancing is always difficult, but trying to get ahead of what is reasonable for this technology is important. So we have some amazing things happening this week. Um, Fox, Warner Brothers, and uh, ESPN have decided they're going to make an app together. They're all competing sports programming. Uh, they left out NBC, by the way. Mm. But there's going to be a single app where the sports programming is going to, you can subscribe to it. You can watch it in one place. How amazing is that? It's going to be a radical change because cable has lived and died on sports programming for a long time now. And as somebody who does not watch sports programming, I do not have cable and I don't miss it at all. Going out to find your sports programming is going to change the way these things work.
I can see baseball, like the NBA, um, uh, the NFL, uh, hockey league, major league soccer. I could see them all trying to wanting to shoehorn in here. You want to be in a place where people who who want to find your information have the ability to do so, and we may be seeing the end of television as we are experiencing it right now, where it just becomes unsustainable. Let's talk a little bit about what Tucker Carlson did this week. Yeah, he got himself an interview with Vladimir Putin of Russia, and he did not release it on any sort of television. He released it on Twitter. Now, he was fired from Fox, uh, I don't know, a year from ago, and he has had this programming that he's he basically releases on Twitter. But the idea that he gets an exclusive with Putin, he's able to fly during a wartime um, and sit down with him and then release it and have you know thousands and thousands and thousands of people watch it. It shows you that you may not need a network and you may not need a television service to be able to get information. Now, how does this play out over time? You know, we've we've got news programming that certainly is there, but you know, do they release it through television service or do they release it through Facebook or through um through TikTok or through Twitter or something of that nature where you can go and watch your news? And then we get to the question of the money of that. How do we fund sports and news without that backbone of the cable subscription? Is Twitter going to be able to sustain that? Well, I think the uh, sports program has already figured out that. That's going to be gambling, Steve. Oh, boy. Because, oh, I mean, it's, yeah. that's that seems to be the, the answer there. I don't know how we're going to get objective news when – People aren't subscribing to newspapers and things of that nature. At some point, they're going to have to figure out a way to pay for these services because they need to be independent. You can imagine the difference between receiving propaganda and then receiving news. Mm -hmm. And then if you watch news that was not part of your community, not part of your country, would those stories be similar? Mm. It's, that's the interesting there's your, your fun long. part. Yeah. All right. So, Steve, we also had some uh, reports issued this week from, from Ford and from Tesla talking a little bit about how they're performing. It looks like the electronic vehicles, the EVs, seem to have a real challenge. Yeah, we are still still in the infancy of that technology. And as we know, the beginning of any technology is a very expensive place to be. And Ford lost apparently $4.7 billion. Yeah, that's a, it's amazing. And in fact, they've stopped production of many of those EVs for a while to see if they can get them off the lots. Mm. So, you know, we really are, once again, at the infancy of this switch from the um, gasoline engines, diesel engines, moving over to these electronic vehicles. Toyota certainly has, has fought that move and said it hasn't been the right time, but they have a different type of strategy with how to use, I guess, current technology. The idea that Toyota is hesitant is fine i have no problem with that they're, they are in this case they're like the apple 
of of this technology being hesitant is fine moving carefully is fine mazda also came out and said that they were going to focus on hybrid vehicles that the middle ground between the combustion engine and the batteries is the right place well the industry leader of that is toyota by far mm -hmm. by far and what um Toyota has, at least their leadership has determined, that the future is not going to just be EVs. It's going to be a mixture of vehicles. And we are at the, this, for, for many people, it's going to be the hybrid that's going to, to lead that. Mm -hmm. And you can see how that's going to happen. We're going to have some different type of engines being released. Toyota is by far the, the, the biggest um, automotive vehicle in the, the world at this point. And certainly they have a 30% share. Um, isn't this is amazing. Mm -hmm. I, I'm fascinated by what's going to happen. I've had my plug-in hybrid for three years now, and I, I absolutely love the middle of the road between these technologies. Well, it's certain the University of Nebraska has also, they released a study this week that dealt with sort of the size of vehicles and also how much they weigh. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, there's some more to it than just the EV conversation. Those heavier vehicles, including those battery-powered heavy vehicles, might not be able to be stopped by our current guardrail systems in the United States. University of Nebraska showed some very uh, striking footage of those vehicles crashing through our guardrails and looking at what we need to do to get to the next level on on that piece of this technology, a, a piece that we didn't maybe think about before this. Well, Steve, you know, if you wanted to see like the latest in technology and wanted to sit in some of the vehicles, what would you do that this week in Chicago? It is time for the Chicago Auto Show. One of my favorite pop culture moments in Chicago is we all used to come together and look at all of the vehicles. And I, I don't know that I'm always an attendee for this maybe every other year maybe every three years but this year might be the year that i want to see some of these new technologies available at the chicago auto show and you know the siren is also ringing right now because uh listen if you've got a loved one in your life what do we do tomorrow steve we go to the gas station and we get flowers no we don't we get flowers steve <laughs> we go time. and we get flowers you don't oh. have to get them at the at the uh, gas the station. Store. You want to get the nice ones, Steve. The jewels. Go over to the jewels. Yes, go get, celebrate, celebrate love with Valentine's Day tomorrow for sure. All right. And what are nerds doing this weekend? We are going to Gallifrey One in Los Angeles. And by we, I mean never me because my goodness, I would love to go to Los Angeles in February in the middle of musical season. But one day I will get to Gallifrey One, the largest Doctor Who convention in the United States. So many guests. The list of guests is glorious this year. So many of my friends are going to be reporting back all weekend long with all of the fun that they're having there. And after all that excitement, next Monday, what would we do if we needed to buy a mattress? It's mattress season. President's Day weekend. Happy President's Day to everybody who celebrates by buying a new mattress. <laughs> George Washington's birthday, baby. <laughs> I don't know, Chip. I think we have enough information to survive another week. What do you think? Only if we come back next week, Steve.
I think we can. We would love to hear from you. Give us a call or a text. Our phone number is 805-4104-TMS. Our website is too much scrolling.com. Our email is too much scrolling at gmail.com. We're on all the social medias. We're on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and YouTube. And you can always ask your smart speaker to play the latest episode of Too Much Scrolling. I want to thank you again for listening to Too Much Scrolling. I'm Steve Foder. I'm Eros, the god of love. We'll see you in the future. These we these feathers, Steve, they, they, they weigh a lot. Don't fly too close to the sun. Oh, that's it, Chris. <laughs>